preparing live stream. I had to type in some stuff. We are live. Welcome everyone back to another episode of Growing with My Fellow Growers, a production of the Cheap Home Grow podcast. This is Jack Greenstock taking over as the host again for this week. Thank you everyone for joining. I'm just going to go ahead and introduce some of my panel members, starting with Matthew Gates. Yeah, hey everyone. This is Matthew Gates, Integrated Pest Management Specialist. If you'd like to see information about all things IPM, you can head over to my YouTube channel, Zenthanol. It's also the account that I'm using to communicate in the comments below. Thank you so much for joining us, Matthew. Next up, we have Spartan. Hello, everybody. I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram at Spartan Grown or at work at Mint Canico, also on Instagram or all over YouTube, mainly right here at the Cheap Home Grow or also on the Michigan Bros Grow Show and many other YouTube channels. Well, we are happy that you joined us because I know that list is getting uh, long, but we're always happy that you make it with us each week and uh, appreciate your time and, and knowledge that you're able to share with the community both from the homegrown, organic, and commercial-grown synthetic perspective. Next up, we got Dr. MJ. Hey, guys. Yeah, Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com. Um, we specialize in the science and practice of growing cannabis. And, uh, yeah, I'm happy to be on the show today and look forward to uh, chatting with my panelists and seeing everybody in chat. Don't forget to uh, turn on live chat and give us a thumbs up if you're interested in that. Very good reminder there. Um, for those who don't know, if you fail to turn on the live chat, you just go in the top chat, it's going to filter out a significant portion of the messages. It's a lot more than you might think, so you're going to miss a lot of that conversation, and it's often good conversation in the chat. It might run parallel to the show or go along with the show, what we're talking about, but it's really good stuff sometimes. And Next up, we have Aaron the Grower. How are you doing? Better un unmute myself. Um, I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. Um, I am Aaron the Grower. I am ATG Acres on Instagram, off-grid, outdoor, and light deprivation. I'm into soil, and I'm into IPM. And, uh, and I had a really cool chat with Clackamas Coot this morning. I don't know if anybody got to see it. I missed it. What uh, was that on? Uh, it was just on, on my channel, on my live feed. I think it's saved under the Instagram TV tab. Um, we talked about vermicompost, neem, meal, cake, oil. We talked about uh, his barley mixture that he sells and stands behind and teaches people for free. And really great guy, man. Been through a hell of a lot and really cool. And your worms. Don't forget about the worms. You guys talked about your worms. The vermicompost. Right? Oh, yeah, vermicompost. I thought that I got, that's my favorite part. That's where I really picked up my, my ears when you got into that. I loved hearing about that. You don't it's a lot the, of fun. Don't get that vermicompost without those worms. So uh, shout out to the worms and vermicompost, probably my favorite of all soil amendments. So I'm glad that you guys shine some light on that topic today because it's a relatively recent discovery in gardening, all things considered. It hasn't been around for hundreds of years. I think it picked up popularity in about the 70s. And since then, there's been more and more uh, research showing the incredible benefits. And I think there's even more to be discovered uh, with worm, com worm compost. So vermicompost, I should say. 
Last up, I guess I should introduce myself. Uh, I may have at the beginning of the show, but I'm at Jack Greenstock on Instagram as well as Cannabuzz. And you can also find me at Jack underscore Greenstock on Twitter. So thank you all again for joining me this week. And um, I think maybe we can start off by talking a little bit more about vermicompost. Um, do you have a worm bin yourself, Aaron? Um, I started, I've, I've kind of on and off um, been into worms, but only just started taking it more seriously. I started a worm bin that's um, like chest high and has levels that we can remove and, but it's really pretty basic. We just put kitchen scraps in it. But as of today, all that's about to change. I'm, I'm getting on my barley game, my malted barley, two row malted barley game. And um, basically it's all about these sprouted seed teas, if you will or amendments and the sprouted seeds carry these mycosoil remediation enzymes that that fuel the worms to have a more nutrient dense casting now i don't know maybe dr mj might know more about that but um i don't know that's what i know do you have a specific tea? Like, a, there's a, I know there's a few different ones that people like with the sprouted seed teas. Which ones do you like, and do you use them in different parts of the cycle? Because I've heard certain people use those teas for different reasoning. Um, I have heard that personally. This is all new. I, um, in terms of sprouted seed teas, I have <clears throat> been a big coot fan for a while, but only I'm just now getting into to all that uh, in terms of sprouted seed teas. I'm I'm more of like basic amendments. Uh, amendment teas or top dress um, fertilizer kind of thing but that said I think that his program can fit nicely with almost any organic program like you can whatever you have going on you can either diversify with his stuff and you don't have to buy his stuff you can literally buy locally all this stuff can be sourced locally it's three ingredients and um but yeah, you don't have to buy his stuff, but it can be incorporated into anything. Like personally, I have like, you know, 20 or 30 inputs in my soil at this point over the years and adding his three is only going to enhance the process, the nutrient cycling. I've uh, once upon a time ran the Coots Mix myself and I was a big fan of it when I used it. Um, a lot of people that don't have good results, I think, don't have the best uh, vermicompost. Interestingly enough that we were talking about that earlier. But I think that's the one uh, thing in the mix that I think can be highly subject to having various levels of quality. So if you have good vermicompost versus like maybe some uh, lower quality stuff, I think that's going to dramatically impact the results with that particular mix. That's specifically what he was saying that, you know, you can run his stuff a million times, but if you don't have nutrient dense vermicompost, um, you're not doing it right. And at the same time, I think one thing that isn't really mentioned enough, I think, because when we talk about worm castings, vermicompost, a lot of people um, talk about it in a, as a fertilizer aspect, which it is. I'm not arguing that, that fact, but what I really enjoy about it is, is for, for example, I like to feed for my carbon source for the, for the worms. I like to, I mulch my leaves in the fall. My, I have big oak trees. And so I mulch them with a, one of those uh, vacuums, you know what I mean? The vacuum mulchers. And I save those and, and dump them into a 55 gallon drum. And then the whole year I can just scoop in those, those leaves. Well, 
what am I getting with those leaves? I'm getting all this biology from in my yard. You know what I mean? And, and that biology builds within that, that vermicompost bin. And uh, it's almost like a little ecology project in its own. And uh, you see all kinds of, uh, you build so much life that all you, like, I don't screen my vermicompost. I push away the top layer and I just scoop it directly out and put it right into my, my final pots. Yeah, I'm going to get some worms, but yeah, I'm getting a ton of other good biology and all that is good. You know what I mean? And that just adds to the, to, to my, uh, my pot. So, um, I really love that aspect of it. The, the life that you can get with a, a really good, just home vermicompost and it's low maintenance. I mean, not, not a difficult task. It's frugal too. I mean, you're talking about free leaves from your yard, kitchen scraps, shout out to abolished farms. Who's in the chat right now. He's a member of the frugal force who encourages people to grow the best possible quality at the lowest price. And I think that that's very admirable to, you know, bring that cost of production down as low as you can while still maintaining the quality. Also, shout out to uh, Fumador and the Flavors, another uh, regular in our chat, Aldridge25, Kate Armstrong, Small Tubes, so many of you already in here. Uh, thank you, 39 watching so far, showing up. Yeah, um, I also have, I actually bought an urban, uh, what was it called, the urban worm or worm bin or something like that anyways it was this bag system which i kind of liked say again my 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 youtube thing started freaking out and playing that was my fault oh okay sorry um yeah so there's this bag system that was supposed to be for vermicompost but um i found a, a flaw and that's if you if you live in a place where rats exist then they can shoot through that bag and that's not fun. So maybe a harder shell is helpful for that kind of a thing. Because I know a lot of, I wanted to try it out for farmers, specifically for the purpose for people who are trying to cultivate off-grid or that kind of a thing. And I guess that's always, pests are always going to be a problem, whether they're vertebrates or invertebrates, but that was kind of an unfortunate thing to happen, I suppose. Kind of took I agree. Of learning. I've I seen should say, locally, we have a, uh they have subsidized like worm bins. I just got an advertisement as I'm scrolling through Instagram. It's like a city that's just North of me. And um, I know that the city that I actually live in because that's where I get my vermicompost from. They have a very good like environmental uh, place that produces their own. And they also offer like rain catching barrels and uh, worm bins. And I think they may even have Bokashi buckets and things now. So uh, locally out here, at least in Southern California, there are some really good solutions. So Matthew, I, we may have to talk off offline and uh, maybe I could get you a hard shell one for a good price. Well, I appreciate that. I do also have a tumbler that I've used as a, um, as a vermicompost bin sort of, but something that's stationary. I've used other systems that have worked better in the past. I love to experiment with new things. So yeah, I look, I look to that. And of course, for people who don't already know, I also have a different kind of uh, worm bin. But instead of um, annelids, we've got uh, fly larvae, specifically black soldier flies. And um, I let my colony kind of stop growing, like last, like at the, the end of 2019. And I haven't started it up yet. I probably should, but I got a lot of data out of it and I really enjoyed the process. Um, 
myself. But if anyone's curious about that sort of a thing, I, I could answer questions about that in the comments. Before we switch to that, I wanted to ask a question about the vermicompost before. Um, it was just about the the pr proper pronunciation of that juicy stuff. I always see it spelled out, but I'm not sure how to say it. That stuff that drips out the bottom of the worm bin sometimes if it's like too damp. Some people say that they use it in their teas, but I also hear people say that they don't like to use it in teas or, or watering. It starts with an L. It's like yeah. lesse, leche it, tea. I, I always know. say leachate is how I say it. Leachate. Yeah, leachate is like how it leaches I out. Leachate. But I don't, okay. I, honestly, I've had a worm bin for two years now and I have yet to ever get anything to leach out the bottom. I don't let it get that wet. I don't, maybe I'm doing something different or not right, but I, I'm getting the, decent worm population they're not dying and i don't get anything dripping out of the bottom of it i don't think it has to be that way and i think some would say that for some systems that's not optimal that you wouldn't want that much moisture um, in the system but at the same time if you do want to run water through and sort of collect a bunch of loose particles or whatever i mean i think that that's that's fine or if it happens because it's raining but um I think harnessing that's good, but not necessarily the best in all, all cases. Yeah, I just brought it up because I saw it on a Instagram post today as I was scrolling through and I was like, you know, it's funny that Spartan, what you just said, because I was like, Spartan always talks about how his never actually produces this. And I hear some people like rave about it, how it's like awesome and they love it and they give it to their plants. Sometimes the plants go wild and then other people are like, no, nah, I wouldn't use that. There's too high of a chance for this or that um, to cause some sort of issue. Yeah, so I figured I'd bring that up. What worried about is anaerobic. You know what I mean? If you have a lot of moisture, a lot of water sitting there, you're more likely anaerobic somewhere. And the water that leached all the way to the bottom that's sitting in a tray, that's probably very anaerobic. And you're pouring that on your soil. So that's probably what they're worried about as far as using it. Maybe if you put it, you know, diluted it in water at a big ratio, you'd be okay and get like the minerals and, and, and thing. Maybe there's some humic material in there that you'd be pulling out and you'd be okay. You'd get like the fertilizer aspect of it, but I'd be really worried about the bad microbes aspect of it um, in that kind of a form. Uh, maybe you can try to bubble it in. I don't know. I would be so worried about the anaerobic condition that I've already sure given me did. so much good stuff with the vermicompost. I don't need that little juice, but uh, I think that what the person did exactly is just you described where they cut it with a bunch of water and diluted it down. So um, I'd like to get back to what Matthew was talking about with the black soldier fly larva and some of the, like the results and uh, how you use that in your garden and uh, using it to cut down on kitchen waste. Well, it's actually a great segue because the leachate that we were talking about, um, we have leachate in BSF and the leachate is what you want because they don't make solid waste, they make liquid waste and they also kind of exude sort of substances. Um, a lot of insects actually um, sort of exude waste, not not from like the, the more obvious uh, area, but also just through their, their spiracles. When they breathe, some of them release nitrogenous waste kind of through their skin that way, arthropods in general. Some of them do, some of them don't. Um, BSF larvae are kind of nice because I mentioned it before, they can feed on meat, which was kind of a cool thing when I think of a like uh, idealistic, like like green waste recycling system that might be like biological in nature potentially. Um, I think of BSF because they could do vegetation and they can do some meat products, but you have to have a colony that's large enough 
to get rid of it in a short amount of time. Um, otherwise, and especially in the commercial setting, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that because there's a lot of things that could go wrong. The larvae are also great because they some of the exudations that they make are sort of um, repellent towards the kinds of blow flies and flesh flies and other sorts of flies that would come in and colonize the meat. So they're sort of a natural repellent in that way. Uh, but I, I have to admit that I'd like to see a lot more research on the subject kind of um, empirically looking at that because some of the microbes that are associated with black soldier fly larvae are, are kind of good, it seems like, or contextually good for certain things, for plants and for the repellent that, we're, that I was talking about. But other microbes might be sort of not so great, or they could potentially colonize in such areas. Um, on Instagram, I had somebody ask a, a pretty profound, very long question, because I was kind of talking about this sort of a thing, about like, because I think I posted a picture of me with, with a mask, the, that arenum mask that I have. Um, and like exposure to microbes is like an important part of like immune system development in many animals and other organisms. Um, but like most organisms and especially social organisms like ants and insects like that, they don't, they require, I don't mean to ramble, but like they don't like indiscriminately expose themselves to microbes like um, they're, they're kind of select and they usually have a pretty interesting immune response or they have like uh, antimicrobial products that they produce because it lets them like feed on dead carcasses or something like that, you know, where <laughs> you really want some sort of really sophisticated system for mitigating that. So everyone's different. You can't just say, well, bees do it. So it's fine for humans or, or whatever. But I guess I'm trying to use it as like a, as like an example, how like, um, the good microbes and the bad microbes uh, might be in the same place, even for things like BSF. So you got to be got to be careful when you're using it for waste disposal, in my opinion. Same for earthworms, for that matter. So, what level of like a uh, personal protective equipment would you recommend someone wear? Is that level the uranium type mask uh, absolutely necessary, or do you think that somebody could get by with something a little bit less? The BSF, um, I don't think it's necessary. Do you mean for coronavirus? I'm not a virologist. No, no, I was in, strictly in regards to the, um, yeah, using it around any, like, I've even been nervous mixing certain soil amendments back when I was making my own soil and Spartan and I. Right. Um, I, I think that the most important thing that you can do is have, so in the system that I have, it was, it was, um, it was. Talk produced. a little bit off here about like, I'd even like pull up my shirt. Oh, I'm sorry. You might be accordioning. Accordioning? I don't know how to say that. Wow, I know what you're trying to say, but I can't help you. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Your your audio is like an accordion. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I'll say that. Um, uh, but to answer your question, I use this system called the, um, well, it's not called the bio, it was called the biopod, but it's also called the protopod. And it was developed by somebody who was working with BSF for a number of years. And I thought that he was, um, I wish I could remember his name. I've said it before, uh, but regardless, um, he was kind of ahead of his time with this system. In my opinion, he even made commercial versions. 
and I became enamored with it like close to a decade ago at this point. Like, man, it's been a long time. And I was able to finally purchase one and like mo- more importantly, have like the time to actually deal with it and kind of uh, track its progress and that sort of a thing. And one of the things that they recommend, which I would also recommend is when you have sort of a colony of these larvae, you want to have a way to easily harvest the puparia and put them in and have them kind of self-select. They use a ramp and sort of a pit where they all fall into to sort of um, pupate and turn into flies. And those adults, you want to attract back into the, um, into the pod to lay their eggs. Now they don't lay their eggs on the actual um, food material. They, they like to leave it on something very close to it or above it. So you can put corrugated cardboard or you can, you can use like a burlap sack or maybe some hemp sack, maybe jute, <laughs> and uh, put it over the, um, the material. One thing, it's a physical blocker for other organisms, which I did see come into the pod. Um, there were some, uh, some organisms that are like predatory on fly maggots, which is, surprise, which is not surprising, and some spiders and that sort of a thing. So you have to be considerate of that too. But um, as for actual PPE, I think that just making sure that you always wear gloves in case you have like a cut or a micro tear on, on your uh, skin, I just wouldn't want you to expose your, your internals for it. Your, your epidermis is really good at a lot of things and keeping pathogens out is a big part of that. Um, some things still get through, of course, but um, a wound would be much more problematic. So especially if you're handling meat or any sort of thing like that, I would just be aware of that sort of a thing. Um, that, that's really the major thing, honestly. It's a pretty no-hassle system. Thank and you. And what about odor? How about odor? You know, is that an issue, especially with the meat? Isn't that not a problem? That's a really good question. I should have mentioned that. Um, you know, I didn't, for the amount that I had, um, and to quantify it, the for my protopod, I probably had about 15 to 20,000 larvae at the same time, which is kind of a lot, um, but not too much. And um, I didn't regularly feed it meat either, but I, did, I would sometimes, and it would only be small amounts and they would, it would be gone it would be gone. You would just have some bone. Like, I don't like to put bones in there too. So that's an important thing so that, because they don't digest the bones. Um, but they really do. They're very efficient at getting rid of uh, meat product. But you, again, you, the only way you wouldn't have smell is by keeping it to a small amount and um, allowing them, allowing only a little, uh, sorry, a little bit amount because you have a colony that's large enough to colonize and eat all of that very quickly. Um, even with vegetative stuff, the exudate really doesn't smell. At least I didn't notice a particular odor. Um, maybe I'm desensitized, but I had some friends check it out too, and they didn't seem to comment on it. Um, but it's possible that if you do have a weird smell, that might mean that there's something wrong going on. So you should be considering that. I got like an earthy sort of smell, kind of like vermicompost in a way. I don't think vermicompost smells too bad, so I guess that wouldn't be too terrible. Um, and I just saw something in the chat that I've heard you clarify on past shows. No tilling for terps says, I don't think spring tills hurt your plants. And then Trey K DGC says, spring tills are garden friends. 
and I know uh, Matthew and Aaron, you're both IPM guys, and I sort of tend to agree with Trey where it's it's a non-issue, and it seems like in the past you've sort of alluded to that, but what are your thoughts on the springtails? It's the, it's the one arthropod that I get the most questions about, definitely. Um, and I always have to tell people that they're typically not a problem. There are some rare sort of cases, at least in my experience, they're very rare, uh, where springtails might be an issue if you have like just a gargantuan number of them and maybe your plants are very, very, very young and they don't have any sort of like hard sort of woody tissue um then they and if they had no other food like it's a very it's a very like rare circumstance for that where all those sort of factors coincide um, and there's many kinds of springtails too some of them are more adapted to like maybe possibly feeding on living plant tissue and but most of them aren't they're either fungivores or they're detrivores so they're specialized on feeding on non-living tissue and a big part of that's because you don't have like an active immune system always or um, that sort of a thing that might make it more difficult for them to feed on the plant material, if that makes sense. What about, I mean, they are, pretty, I would, I always consider them pretty much a decent, a good sign because like you said, they're like decomposers for your soil. But what about, I didn't think about this, but what about vectors for disease? I know they don't really feed on the plant, so it's probably not an issue, but I mean, is it, is there a way that they could, uh, that? I think that can, intellectually, I, I think that's plausible. Um, but I don't know of any cases where they're a major vector or that they're mentioned as a major vector, but that could just be my own ignorance talking. Um, I think part of the reason why they're not cited as competent vectors typically is because um, they don't typically make uh, a lot of uh, direct and sort of like intra, not intravenous, but you know, sort of like uh, they don't consume the plant tissue itself. Like, for example, 50% of plant viruses that are known are spread by aphids. And that's because they have a very sophisticated um, interaction with the plant sap when they feed. And springtails really don't have that typically. So I think that's a major reason why they're not. But I could totally see a situation where a fungal spore or uh, a little bit of tissue or something like that could sort of travel on a springtail as it moves. Um, so, so I think that that's plausible, but probably not probable. I was thinking more on the, in my mind is like, sometimes you can see usually a lot in organics or if you're using a microbe additive, you'll, you'll get a lot of the feeder roots towards the top that will pop up out of the soil, maybe go back down in. And uh, sometimes those, those roots that hang out there will either wither up and die from air pruning or they'll, be in a situation which is really wet and they might even uh, get almost like a, a, a rot. And I'm thinking, well, if it gets to that kind of situation where it's still kind of attached to the plant, but it's starting to decay, I don't know. <laughs> I I do that. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's, a, that's actually a good example of where that could, when that could be a possibility. Because if the root, if they come across the root and it's already decaying and it's kind of attached to the living tissue, I could totally see that being a problem. Um, I know that with like nematodes or something like that, where um, certain nematodes will create galls in the roots or they'll, or they'll just like sort of putrefy the roots as they feed on the tissue. And, as, and when the tissue, um, well, fungus gnats are a better example, really. Uh, as they feed on the plant tissue, they might vector a fungus and then that fungus further putrefies the roots and then they feed on both. 
And so it's kind of a symbiotic mutualism because they, they can process the fungus or they can process the plant tissue or they can process it like the, de the decayed remains. So it's a three-way win. So it's kind of, um, it's a selective pressure for them to work together, which is not great for cultivators. For anyone who's curious, Kyle from Predicative Breeding is uh, having some technical difficulties trying to join. He's tried to join at least like eight or nine, maybe 10 times now. I just hit admit that there's some issues with the Zoom that's not wanting him to join for some reason. But if he pops up and you see him, uh, we'll make sure to introduce him. That's very frustrating. I'm sorry to hear that. He'd probably have some pretty cool insight to talk about this sort of a thing as well. So in lieu of that, I just want to say, you know, shout out to him, shout out to Kyle, predicated breeding, and um, look him up online. And uh, yeah. <laughs> Pbreeding.com is where you can get his genetics if you're interested. And uh, shout out to UK SIF 420, Purple Thumb OG, Trey Valone, uh, Ganja Grower. Uh, some of these guys I see in the chat regularly. It's always nice to give you a little shout out. Right now, it seems like we're just having the, uh, you know, they're doing their own thing in the chat, having conversations with each other. And uh, that's all good too. But it's uh, always good to see everybody in here. Dr. MJ, you've been uh, quiet over there. How are things going in the co Cocoa for Cannabis world? And uh, I know you're busy with school and everything. Uh, how's life treating you? It's going okay. We're sort of in a transition period. Um, yeah, I submitted grades, so I'm done for it with uh, the semester. I'm on to summer break, um, but still sort of <laughs> getting into my summer break responsibilities. This is the first weekend out, so um, yeah, I got some fun, some fun projects coming up. I've got the the last few things that I need are en route to start doing uh, my grow light testing, building the the reflective walls and uh, my target surface for the the, the mock canopy, essentially. Um, they should be in by the end of the week. I've got two lights in boxes in the other room. I've got another light en route. And I think I'm gonna have to like rent a space someplace and get set up and, and test a bunch of fixtures. So I'm looking forward to that. That should be, it's probably not gonna be this month, but it'll be at the beginning of June sometime when I'll start uh, doing that. Put up some videos for each of those and uh, new test reports, add things to the calculator, all that kind of stuff. I'm looking forward to that. I really liked uh, Migros testing and you're like doing the stuff on the American soil and uh, taking similar measurements and I'd imagine using similar implements to uh, measure with and I'm really happy. Yeah well that was one of the big there. things um, in our collaboration we sat down we had several really long conversations about uh, grow light testing protocol and about sort of what we're doing and why we're trying to do it um, and yeah I, I ended up writing the the protocol so it's on Cocoa for Cannabis, our grow light testing protocol that uh, Shane and I are both following to, to do tests going forward. It outlines sort of how we select uh, the, the area, the test area and the hanging height. And those are both things that Shane has done in different ways over the years. Um, and one of my sort of goals was to try to really standardize this process and, and make it make sort of scientific accurate sense across the board. Um, so that was one of the sort of defining points of uh, our agreement to uh, sort of go into this and start collaborating was really establishing that 
grow light testing protocol. So if anybody's interested in any of that stuff, it's a it's a cool article. I like that article. I've spent a lot of time on it. I, I put up different uh, par charts to sort of show what happens when you change things during a, a par test um, and why we're making the, the kinds of decisions that, that we make. So in terms of, yeah, like I said, test area size, why reflective walls are important, how to position them and uh, fixture height. I think it's really cool that you make such resources available. Um, like, I mean, in the spirit of letting people kind of make their decision by giving them the tools to know how to do it correctly. Yeah, I mean, there's really, there's no standards out there that um, make it really easy to to compare different grow light fixtures. And there's a lot of different ways measurements are taken and then people try to compare incommensurable measurements. Um, and so that's been, uh, it's, it's a cool project. It's gotten sort of deep into the weeds in a few places, but um, you know, and to a certain extent, I think that some growers want things to be a little bit easier um, or a little bit more sort of straightforward. I, I definitely sense a resistance away from sort of dealing with things in terms of just thinking about watts and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, we try to go for accuracy where, where we can and where we know how to sort of do that. So um, we appreciate you bringing, project. bringing all the science and making it uh, understandable for the common person. Cause like, I think as far as like hard science goes, there are a few understood measurements and I think you guys are using the uh, proper ones, making it understandable, like cost per PPFD and things like that. Or PPF. Well, yeah, well, we really, I mean, we came up with the concept of usable PPF in a, in a conversation, Shane and I, um, along, like we were on the phone for like two and a half hours that, that day, really going back and forth about what metrics were important. Um, and it's not a measurement that is, is really standardized across the industry. Um, to the extent that the industry is standardizing, they're standardizing around integrated sphere testing, um, which is standard, but it's producing numbers that aren't really relevant to us as home growers. They're not as relevant as the usable PPF number is. So the total PPF is measured in an integrating sphere and that's every, it counts every single photon that's produced by a fixture, no matter which direction that photon is sort of traveling in when it leaves the fixture. Um, and that's a number that you can sort of compare one fixture to the other, but depending on, on the setup, depending on the form factor, depending on a number of other things, um, not all of those photons sort of end up at their target. So that number of really trying to measure the photons that arrive to the canopy um, hasn't been standardized. There have been people that have been trying to do it, but those assumptions that you make about test area size, about the positioning or the, the presence of reflective walls and about fixture height make a big difference in how much of the, the photons you'll end up counting. And, and that's one of the reasons that it's, it's really difficult to compare numbers from different kinds of tests, um, just because those numbers can get, get swayed so much by the, the, the setup features in the, the test itself. Well, speaking of uh, usable light at the canopy, uh, the end product of that is flower and trimming flower. And in the chat, they're asking Spartan Grown 
uh, to show what he was trimming on, and I saw he just held it up there for a second. But Spartan, would you like to tell us what you uh, just harvest or are, are trimming on now? Yeah, this is that uh, blue cough that uh, the late great Subcool gifted me, the DJ Short Blueberry times uh, Cal Cushman's uh, Strawberry Cough. And uh, she's not a super dense bud. As you can see, she's a little bit airy. But, uh, my God, it's one of my favorite flavors in the garden. Oh, I got a little piece hanging off. But, yeah, I love it. It's just, it's hard to describe. It's it's really like a fruity, but there's with gas. <laughs> like a fruity gas, I guess. That's Best the, flavors grow like that. Just punch, really larfy, but, you know, perfect. Punch strawberry cough has that gas in it, too. I've grown um, recently strawberry daiquiri, which was uh, same from Subcool. It was Jack the Ripper crossed with Kyle Cushman's strawberry cough. And most of my phenos were pretty dominated by that strawberry cough where it was like really fuely and veg. But by the time it was finished flower, it was heavy, dominant strawberry smell and flavor with a sort of subtle gas underneath it. So big fan of that uh, strawberry cough, whatever it's crossed to. It seems to be really nice. Blueberry seems like it'd be a good pairing as well. And you and everyone else on the Michigan Bros Grow Show seem to talk about how good that flavor is. So I tend to uh, want to try that whenever I get to come visit. Actually, I have a question for the panel. Go for it. So um, I have some friends who are who are doing a, a small grow for themselves, but it's outside, and they they live in the high desert. I've mentioned uh, these groups of people before. Um, they're kind of up in the sort of sort of um, where is that area? What's it called? They're like north of Bishop, kind of. If anyone knows what that is in California, and it's like the high desert and a lot of sun gets cold in the winter, um, kind of sparse vegetation, chaparral, chaparral high desert sort of ecosystem. Um, has anyone ever like done an outdoor grow or know anyone who has in that sort of situation? Um, they're even like irrigating from a river that's on, on the land of one of the people, which is kind of neato. I, I like that they're using a lot of like natural systems like that where they can, because they can. But if the that's other the case, thing to think about there, Matt, I don't have any experience outdoor growing in that climate, but you have a really big um, swing in temperature during the day, even in the summer, um, where it gets really hot and then the temperature still drops off the table at night. So that, that day night cycle is, is another consideration to make. You want a strain that's, that's sort of tolerant of that. That's a really excellent point because I remember going up there to, uh, I think we, we kind of got close to Mammoth, um, and this was several years ago, and the snow was stacked so high. I mean, they were pushing it out of the roads, but I had never seen it get like that before. Um, it was amazing. If I you was, ever went to Ohio or Michigan, we, we're all laughing right now as Spartans giggling because we get that every every year in those areas. <laughs> but um, what I was going to say is Miss Nudie Grows actually had she's a Canadian grower and she had a bunch of plants outdoors that she thought it was early enough. Like she'd be able to avoid frost. Well, it snowed and every single one of her cannabis plants lived. Even the Mexican ones that her friend brought back, like from her trip to Mexico that looked kind of like a maybe heirloom or even potentially land raised, who knows. But um, even the Mexican acclimated seed that was popped in Alberta, Canada that got snowed on survived and she's taken them inside and like took the snow off the pots. And some of them she actually just left out there because they were up off of like the uh, ground where they didn't get as much snow on them, but they're outside in 30 something degree temperature. And it was a bunch of different varieties and they all lived. So like 
cannabis is very hardy and uh in the desert if i would say the heat concerns me a little bit more than the cold in the desert i think they'll be able to handle that swing um some areas in southern california san diego specifically that i've been able to grow in or have buddies that have grown there it gets super hot during the day and then it drops off into like that 40s 50s at night and the plants seem to manage it the big thing i would say at the hottest points of the day you have to make sure that there's water in the root zone like it will drink a lot more than people anticipate even in large pots sometimes people have to water a couple times in one day because if it gets dried especially on a really really hot day uh, that can just take your plants out but if you cool down the root zone by watering them or even just having airflow down there it gives you a lot better chance and if they have a river nearby it seems like water usage won't be too much of an issue so hopefully they can fertigate fairly frequently with a uh, soil mix that doesn't get root rot or abused for that. Yeah, 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 I agree with that. When the when the VPD is is really high like that in in a dry climate with a high temperature, it, it's more that the plants just need to be able to transpire. They need to be able to move water through themselves and have it evaporate out of their leaves um, to really cool them down. So um yeah they need access to that are you are they gonna be growing in containers or in the ground in the ground they um i haven't been able to physically go to the location but i know the location and they are uh on someone's land who uh has actually diverted a little bit of this river this like creek that they, that they have access to um uh to irrigate and I, i'm pretty sure it's all legal and good to do that but um because it's on their property and it's only a little bit but the water um, rights if they have the water rights yeah but we don't need to get into their legal position we'll just <laughs> yes it's, it's not it's uh, a hypothetical any, for this uh, discussion yeah, it's it's so i haven't grown in one of those climates but uh, i've grown outdoor this actually it, it's killing me but this this year will be the first year i'm not growing outdoor but um what i would do things i would do to solve those problems so in the daytime you're going to have very hot probably dry conditions probably too much sun. I would do shade cloth. It's not that expensive, commercially available. Shade cloth's your best friend. It's going to keep keep the temperatures down a little bit and it's going to reduce the intensity of the sun, especially in the hottest parts of the day. Um, water, that's a good example. Um, if you, I'm just going to throw out numbers. It doesn't matter, but you can, you know, fill in the correct number, but we'll say if you're giving each plant a five gallon bucket of water a day and you're in those hot, dry conditions, for one, it's going to drink a lot more than normal. But if, if, if whatever the number is, if it's five gallons that that plant's going to get that day, break it up, give it multiple waterings of, of smaller, you know, maybe two gallon watering um, in the hottest part of the day. And then a couple hours later, give it another two gallon, you know, and get you back to that, that big thing. But giving them those little doses of water will instantly cool, cool it, cool it down around, around that area. Um, another um, thing you can do is make sure that you have a mulch layer of some sort, something covering the soil because you're just gonna be evaporating water as soon as you put it in there if you don't. And it's gonna be really hydrophobic. It won't absorb real well. So some kind of a mulch there. This is and a this light is pots to note too. for California. California clay, it's a big thing. And um, over there, it definitely, you're definitely right about the dryness and the, the need for one of those layers. I agree. I know that you said they're planting into the ground, but for people that are growing in hot environments during the summertime, a lot of people switch to white or tan grow bags or pots um, versus black because black keeps the heat a lot more. So that could be a good way. And the thing that makes me not concerned for your group is um, the dragonfly earth medicine crew has long 
actually recommended for greenhouse growers if you're having pest issues that you can close up your greenhouse turn off all of the ventilation during a hot day and let it get up to 130 degrees which sounds crazy but it kills a lot of the pests and if you do that with the intention you know you're going to do it so you plan for it by making sure that the root zone stays incredibly uh, well watered with the proper temperature water like I think 68 degrees which is a pretty good temperature no matter what the environment is like but when it's 130 degrees in the room if you're giving it 68 degree water at the root zone the plants up top can handle that heat a lot better than the roots uh, from what I've been told so it seems that if you give them that water and cool down the root zone they're very I've seen three different farms do it kill off a bunch of pests and have their plants thriving within two to three weeks. Hmm, that's interesting. I definitely agree that uh, that an increase in heat, especially over like 30 C, can be pretty uh, detrimental to a lot of insects. You you start approaching that sort of like can't molt val- can't molt very well um, situation. Uh, I was actually going to ask in the comments. Uh, Daniel Duval says, uh, "What do you mulch with?" And I suppose that's directed towards Spartan. If you were to mulch in a high desert environment, how would you mulch? I don't. I would look. In, I would look to my environment. What do I have? You know, I'm the home growth situation where it's like, use what I have available. That's that's what I'm going to use. I'm not going to. I like your it. style. You know, I'm not going to sort near them. Yeah, I mean, I feel you like can make hay all around people, California. People think you have to go to the store or something and buy hay. Let your grass grow. Cut it down. Dry it. That's hay. Just, I mean, you can, you can do it. You don't have to, it doesn't have to be super expensive. These people are very much into that sort of style too. So I think that's, that's what they're already doing. I mean, <laughs> so um, I definitely agree with that too. Just chop up some, um, they've got a lot of like uh, sort of scraggly bushes that they could process, for example, on their property and that sort of a thing. I want to get back. I just want to raise one sort of point on the, the temperature of the water that Jack was saying. I agree with Jack that 68 degrees. Um, and it's really about the dissolved oxygen in the water at that point, especially if you're going to start doing what Spartan says in terms of increasing the, the frequency of the fertigation in a soil grow like that outside or of the irrigation. Um, you can't let the water get too hot or it will be, there won't be any dissolved oxygen in it. Um, and that will create a problem for the plants as well. So I think probably the main reason that the, you need to keep the, the root zone in that sort of range and cooler is so that the water has oxygen holding capability. I really like that. And the other thing that occurs to me is that like, um, you know, I, I'm, <laughs> Earlier, I was talking about indiscriminate exposure to pathogens, but here, like, not to get into the technicals, but like, if you're bringing water from like a natural source, like a pond or a river or a creek or something like this, like, that's like, that's indiscriminate exposure, right? In, in a way, if you don't process it in some way, um, and certainly from an IPM perspective, there could be some issues with that potentially. Uh, also for human health, as far as that's concerned. I love the idea. It's like aquaponics, man. You're getting all that uh, aquatic microbiome that you don't have available to you normally, and you're watering your plants with it. I absolutely love the idea. You have a soil layer. These are going to be big plants. You know, soil's a natural filter. It's going to help you with a lot of that stuff. And if you have a really nice, good kick in, well, I don't know. It's going to be difficult for a living soil in a really dry environment. But if you had really good living soil, it should be, or worm population even. 
worms going through there is going to help you with a lot of that bad stuff just running up and down there and neutralizing stuff with their super slime man i've had super soils at 90 and 100 degree days out here in california and they actually keep the moisture a lot better yeah i was just uh i guess it's like sort of a um pedantic point about like exposure to the elements and that kind of thing but i do agree and i don't like think people soils have... or other like a sort of media oh well, i think you made what, a great what was point. that jack I think you made a great point about the river situation being a potential like vector or uh, of the the water might not be clean every time or maybe it's good for a while and then during a certain season it might change but i've seen like spartan said that it seems like an awesome thing because i've actually seen uh, plants grow either like right along a river or nearby it close enough that they can be dry farmed where they can like reach their tap roots down into the ground and go get the water that way and if there's like trees around them they can get the uh, moisture from the no. Many a many a time I've trekked up to where my friend lives at this point, and we've had um, a lot of cool experiences up there. Um, and one of them, one of the things that I will say is that it's fun to fish sort of along those areas where it's allowed. And you definitely see like, you know, where the waterways are because there's foliage there and there's trees and sort of uh, bushes and um, shrubs and that sort of a thing. So I think they, they do have some access to some natural shade too, which will be kind of nice. Yeah, it's it's amazing how much life just grows around water. Like you said, you can see it even just like if you don't know what's going on, you'll you'll notice all of the life surrounding that riverway. And um, I think that more and more people are starting to consider these things when they're buying properties and trying to take advantage of them because I talked about it earlier, but the cost of production is a big factor for a lot of people that aren't just growing for themselves if they want to get it out into any market. Um, obviously, everybody wants to say that they claim quality first over everything, but people have to pay bills and things like that. So if you can lower your cost of production while still maintaining decent quality or even great quality, then uh, I think that should be a goal for a lot of, even if you're a small gardener, I like to know my cost per gram or cost per ounce, whatever it is, versus what I used to have to go pay for it or still have to go pay for it if I run out. One of the better, that, go, oh, sorry, I didn't want to step on you, man. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say this. I'm curious what you're going to say, Spartan, but I was going to say um, one of the advantages of that location is exactly as you say. It is um, cheaper to live there and it is a little bit more desolate, I have to admit, but uh, these people enjoy that sort of um, uh, ambiance and I definitely like visiting up there for that reason entirely um so but also cuts down the cost of a lot of things it does make you reliant on certain like exports i suppose for technology or whatever but um yeah they like to make use of the land and the land is uh, cheap and they know how to work it so um i'm excited about that what were you gonna say spartan i was just gonna say there's another way to look about that too like jack was going about how you know he said you know i know everybody's first priority is quality but then you also want to have to do that at the cheapest possible price yes but then then if you like some people are like all right then then i turn a profit or you can take that extra money and how can you increase your quality with that extra money at the same cost you see what i mean so that's where the that's what puts you above the rest when you start thinking that extra step you know what i mean that's kind of like what amazon did i hate to say because a lot of people hate on them now but they took all of their money and reinvested their profit into their own company and that's why they grew so rapidly. He aggressively reinvested in himself. And Jeff Bezos is the one I'm referring well, to because he's kind of a 
make a billion. It wasn't but... profitable for a long time. So they went in and burned through venture capital money in order to gain market share, um, which is sort of similar, I suppose, in terms of the strategy being to gain market share. But it, it really was a different strategy in terms of just reinvesting profits. Amazon didn't become profitable until it had already reached sort of market saturation. I'm just happy they made textbooks cost a whole shit lo- a ton less because in college, fucking paying three, four, five hundred dollars at the fucking bookstore when you could get it used from somebody who had it last semester most times. But even then, they fuck you and say, oh, you got to get the fifth or sixth or seventh, eighth edition. And, uh, yeah, so that, that still goes on. Books cost damn near as much as fucking college does. Yeah, no, and the the reps sell them pretty hard too. Um, I think about that quite a bit in terms of selecting textbooks on the other side of it. And I actually teach several of my classes without any textbooks that students have to buy for that reason. I would take things. all of your classes. That would make me. That would make you very popular. <laughs> That would be the first time uh, that kind of a thing would happen, too. <laughs> yeah. Somebody, no telling for Terps is asking in the chat um, to one of the other guys, Conjure Grower. He says, have you heard of Science LED? And I know Spartan Grown, you just won one of those. Uh, and I saw that you commented, I like my Science LED, but I got to give them a shout out. I mean, you, you want in if you want to talk about a little bit about your experience so far. I don't know if you've hit a harvest yet with it or uh, how far along you've come and what you think. Yeah, I did a partial harvest. There's like a little, it was probably like five weeks of a harvest, the last five weeks. And then I've uh, completed, or I've, I'm, what am I, like four, yeah, maybe four to five weeks in on, on the, the harvest after. It hasn't harvested yet. But um, I just, because it's so customizable and you can play with it, that's, oh my God, it's so fun to mess with. But um, they just had an update to the app. And I haven't played with the new features. And that's another great thing is that, uh, you know, you get these firmware updates that you can update and that updates your light too, you know. So that's really cool. And the blue the Bluetooth where your phone, you know, is the controller for your lights. That's amazing. I would and, love that because my timers just fucked me. And I <laughs> had the situation where they went from timer to on and it like got bumped or nudged or something happened. But I had my plants in like the, thankfully it was in the first week of flower, but they stayed the light and I just turned it up to full intensity because I figured it was going to be only 11 hours of light and they could handle a certain uh, PPFD value at that short of a time duration. But when it was on for 24 hours, like one plant started turning yellow the first day and I like didn't realize it soon enough and then the second day everything was drooping and it looked like it everything had way too much light i was like what the fuck's going on check the timer and sure enough it was on on versus timer mode so even though i had all the pins perfectly arranged all it was is a mechanical switch that got moved maybe a few centimeters or an inch and with the bluetooth with the science or or any other thing that has like a controller i also could have avoided that with the like 20 or 25 dollar wise cam that everyone keeps telling me to put in your tent so you could see like oh did the light turn off did everything you know has anything fallen over i'm definitely going to invest in that now for my next upcoming grow because i think i'm saving timers Uh, yeah what's that uh what's it called the pulse is it the pulse the one that's the uh one that monitors pulse pulse grow yeah. Um, monitor yeah i'm saving up for one of those i think i want i want it to send me an email or a text when when stuff goes wrong so i can react <laughs> quickly that stuff's really cool and you can get like um really techy if like you can't afford that one there's like other ones that can work with like 
echo plugs or something like Wi-Fi plugs and people turn on and off their dehumidifiers and there's a whole bunch of different systems like uh, Miami Mango uses uh, Trollmaster um, and a lot of people really like that because you can basically customize it to work with your lights, your dehumidifier, air conditioner and all those different things and like uh, Spartan was just talking about, it can send you sort of notifications if anything goes off of track, which is gives you a lot of peace of mind if you ever want to leave your grow for a certain amount of time and still know all the conditions. It goes a step further too. Not only that, you can, can you can change things. You you could make changes. Uh, you can control it remotely uh, on some of these with the with the controllers, like the Trollmaster, I believe has that. I believe, but uh, yeah, that's that's just amazing to me to to be able to do that. I mean, I don't have that, but I, just the, the idea of it, I think is great. Well, even your science thing that really impressed me, it sort of uh, reminded me of the Tesla model where you buy a Tesla, right? But then every few months they're sending you an update over the internet. So your car that was already awesome just got better. It's like your light that was yeah. already awesome just got improved for one reason or another. And um, I think as they continue to produce lights, they're going to stay with the modern you know, generations of chips or whatever. And be at least competitive with the top uh, efficiencies. Yeah. So, well, the thing that I like about the light the most, to be honest with you, I really do love the app part. But the it's kind of like a bar style, but uh, they've got a uh, what do they call it? Like the way it focuses light uh, lenses or something. Yeah, they've got a lens optics. on there, optics, so that it spreads the light really wide. And because of that, you can bring it right down. And uh, when you have you know limited height. That's great because I mean I think the hanging the I think the recommended hanging height is like eight inches. You know what I mean? What other LED? Most other LEDs you're talking thirty inches or you know some a foot, some eighteen inches. But I mean eight inches, yeah, sign me up. Yeah. yeah. It, well, have you experienced that with the stretch though? That's always been my my sort of question with those. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, Fluent Spider was sort of when it first came out was very low hanging light. Um, and a lot of those LED bars, some of them are designed for higher PPFD and, and we really need to hang them higher, but a lot of them are designed for 12 inches or less. Um, and I'm just wondering how it's like growing with a light like that when the plants are growing three or four inches a day. Well, William, you just adjust it. I mean, I can, I can keep the peg to the ceiling and have it at 100%, which is far too intense. I mean, as yeah. the plants grow up into it being far too intense and I just dim it, you know what I mean? And then I don't have to screw with trying to get it. I only have to one time screw with getting it level and perfect and then never mess with it again. You know what I mean? And it's, and how do I adjust that intensity? It's just open up my phone, open up the app and slide a slider bar. And that's right. No, I'm, I'm just saying that it's going to quickly, you're going to have to make adjustments. If you're doing it based on light height for PPFD, you're going to have to make adjustments uh, sort of a lot because the, the range is smaller. Does that make right. sense? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, I don't know. I just go by what the, I go in there and see what the plant looks like. If the plant looks like it's struggling. I, I, I'd lower the intensity. I mean, I don't get complicated with it. Okay. <laughs> I don't have I don't have the right tool. You know what I'm saying? The Spartan doesn't move his light have, at all. He just keeps I, it pinned. You keep I have it my right. observation okay. is, is the best I have because I don't trust these stupid phone apps that are going to give me a correct light reading. Um, I mean, really we had to raise you have to raise HID lights, old school HID lights, anyway, from time to time because it, you know, or you yeah yeah if you'd like to keep them in optimal range. 
Right, but if the, if the ultimate height there is like 22 inches and, you know, that gets down to like 18 inches, that's not as big of a deal as if the optimum height is eight inches and it gets to four inches. You see what I'm saying? Like just the, sure. the percentage of that the, the light penetration. Yeah, so Spartan doesn't actually run it that close to the canopy right, like right, a right. lot of people would. And I, I agree with uh, Dr. MJ because I sort of – I run cobs, but it seems like the best um, – distance for me is like 15 to 18 inches but i can get them as close as 12 and occasionally if i'm dimming it i can run it close about that 12 right uh, inch range but then like sometimes as that dark period comes the next day i go i check right when the light comes on i'm like oh shit these are way too close to the light now so i'm going to move it up two three inches and i do i just i have a bubble level that magnet sticks right on my canopy substrate of my light so it tells me like left right up down whatever so i can make sure it's level pretty easily with just the little ratchet hangers or whatever so i do actually move it up and down last run i did what spartan's talking about where i just kind of had it on the uh, ceiling of the tent and then had the intensity i have a little dimmer so i could change it depending on the stage of the growth but i just found this run um because i was using a lot more uh migro mentioned there's like a lux to par uh meter if you use 3500k yeah yeah, so if you use a 3500K LED, you take your Lux on this like Doggo apps, free app for Android, unfortunately not on iPhone yet. Um, but what you do is you then divide it by like 10 or 100. So basically you just take off a couple zeros and it gives you a, a good estimate of comparatively to like he tested it up against his Apogee instruments, which is like a few hundred to a few thousand dollar sensor depending on the setup you get. So with that... Um, just I noticed my plants grew a little bit faster when I lowered the light like as close as I could to get the perfect PPFD like the entire time yep. where when I vegged it where I just had it pinned to the top granted like I, I aired on the side of too little light so they would like maybe get a little stretchy versus like it burnt as a seedling um, I think it can work both ways and it's just about the speed of the production and Dr. MJ actually sort of pushed me <laughs> to think like my veg was going a little too long and like why I was running my lights so low. Granted, it costs like damn near nothing. I was like dimmed it to 20 watts. I was like, shit, I'm vegging for fucking free basically and doing 17 hours. But when I cranked the intensity up a little bit, I noticed my veg time cut down maybe like five to 10 days just by running yeah, more yeah. intense light during the early growth. Cool. Yeah, there's always been that that sort of... I mean, it, it's discussed in a lot of literature, so it's not, it's more than just sort of a rumor, this idea that the the light jumps up at, at flowering, right, and that plants need less light during vegetation period than they do at the flowering period, but in terms of the actual density of photons that strike the plant, once it's mature, it can handle that, that full load, and they will grow the best at that sort of full load of PPFD around 700. I'd also just want to say uh, from an anecdotal experiment, and I know that there's a lot better like science to support this, but when I ran too much light, like I was running a 315 in a three foot by 1.67 tent, which is five square feet, the light's meant to cover nine square feet, no dimming ability. So all I could do is raise it or lower it and run a bunch of exhaust because I didn't have the ability to get air conditioning to the tent area. And when I was running like way too much light, certain plants sort of just like adapted to it and handled it. And I was surprised and it might come down to I don't have a CO2 meter, so it might be like me and Spartan where we just have really high levels of CO2 potentially in my living space because certain times of the year it's mostly sealed and um, humans breathing and cats running around, like there's a lot of CO2 that's building up. 
So the plant might be able to handle instead of a thousand or 500 to a thousand PPFD, it might be able to handle up to 1500 PPFD and grow much, you know, grow fine. And I noticed I'd have some fox tailing, but certain plants would just sort of like get used to it. And um, it's like, that's their light. This is their space. And they're going to figure out a way to make it all the way through their sexual maturity and flower. And I like, definitely think produce. foxtailing is usually more because of the heat, uh, the localized heat on that flower than it is just as a result of uh, PPFD intensity. And I would tend to agree because with that much light, I was having too much heat. So I was always battling to stay right. below proper ranges. But uh, well, what I've noticed when I really out. had too much, too high of PPFD, and this was like the most extreme case of this was last year's spring autoflower challenge when my plants wouldn't stop growing and I couldn't raise the lights anymore and I couldn't dim them. Um, and they got way too close. It really adversely affected quality. It didn't affect quantity. It didn't stop them from growing. Um, it did fry some of the upper leaves um, visible signs of calcium deficiency, for example, in those upper leaves. One of the few times that you'll ever see that in the canopy as opposed to on the lower growth is when it's light damage. Um, and the, the biggest impact there was the buds were just not any good um, from those terminal buds, uh, especially. But really, the, the one plant that got way too close to the light, none of it, its buds was very good. So I think that it, to some extent, the plants can tolerate it if you really um, sort of push them through it. I mean, it, it's unlikely to straight out kill the plant, but it's definitely going to uh, make the quality suffer. I totally agree. And I think uh, part of that is just the terpenes, which are, I think a lot of people have come to realize they enjoy that maybe even more than the THC or the CBD is like the combination of whatever dose of THC or CBD you've got with a specific terpene, which makes that smell or flavonoid or minor cannabinoid. And um, when it gets hot, a lot of those terpenes volatize off. So they're not going to be around when the yeah, flowers well, I don't harvested. know that it was really so much a, a heat in my situation. I, the temperatures were reasonably under control. It really was just PP, excessive PPFD. Um, the, they were getting way too much light on those colas. Did you get that like white bleaching as well as the calcium? They got a little bit of white of light bleaching in some of the buds, but really the, the canopy leaves, um, the, the most notable symptom that you would look at the plants and see was that, that those canopy leaves right under the lights um, were displaying signs of, of really severe calcium deficiency. I just wanted to throw something out there because somebody in the uh, DMs, I can't find who it was because... I get like way too many DMs per day, but um, somebody sent me a photo of their plant that was outdoor and I asked them like, cause sometimes people grow their plant indoor and they take it outside to take a picture. Um, so I never know, like, I, I, like I said, I'm talking to hundreds of growers. I'm not going to memorize everybody's exact setup. So I see this guy's photo and it looks like the tip of his nug is like what I would consider like light bleached work. It's that sort of like albino looking like white top. Uh huh. But, I asked, are you running any lights? And they said, no, this is a, a true outdoor grow. And I go like, how's the intensity of like the sun? Like, but there was no other buds. It was just the tip of the cola. And he sent me some link from like a Mel Frank photography article where they talked about certain buds, even in nature, like outdoor grown, get that sort of white tip and that it could be uh, in, in Mel Frank's story and in, in the article that I was sent, yeah. he said that they tested the white tip and it actually had higher terpene and THC content, but that might be only when it's grown in the natural setting and yeah. i had 
that was the first I'd ever heard of it because I always looked at it as like, oh, there's white bleaching. Like I fucked up. My light was too close for a little too long and my plant suffered from it. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it made me sort of reconsider it a little bit. But I, I think that there is definitely... It could I, I want to make definite. a comment about something that, that Trey said in the chat. He said that that's not calcium deficiency. It's just light damage. It's actually um, caused by the light, but it, it is the, the symptom that I was actually observing was calcium deficiency. Um, and it, it occurs when light is very intense, some other element will be the limiting factor for photosynthesis. It's often carbon dioxide, but it creates a heavy strain on some of the macronutrients. Um, and in a cocoa grow where calcium is always sort of on the edge, um, it's very common to find calcium deficiency in that specific system. So I wasn't able to provide enough calcium to support photosynthesis in the canopy leaves under that intensity of light. And I'll just throw out, I had some calcium deficiency when I was talking about that timer issue where I ran light for 24 hours versus 11, which was my plan. I, the first thing was like either calcium or mag, but it was that yellowing in the top leaves, which Doc pointed out earlier, you usually yeah. see it in the lower growth, but when it is caused directly by light, it's going to happen in that upper spot because it's getting hit. So yeah, it's a really localized light. condition. Exactly. There's not enough of the macronutrient right there to power the photosynthesis that that leaf is trying to engage in. I often run into a similar conceptual problem when I try to explain that like, like a symptom can be genetic, but it can also be uh, caused by like a pathogen that manipulates the plant's genes to produce a hormone. So do I say it's a hormonal problem? Do I say it's a, gen a biotic problem? Do I say it's a genetic? It's really all three kind of. Right, exactly. There's different proximate and ultimate factors involved in sort of what's driving these things. And then there's the context that, that's required as well. I just wanted to back up what Jack was saying, though. There are different cultivars like different levels of light. I've noticed that. I mean, for example, my glue, even my glue crosses really can take just about any, I mean, any amount of light I'm willing to give them almost. I mean, they, they'll take a lot of light. But for, uh, I noticed that my Mac 1 cut, she likes to sit out in the shade. I'm always putting her on the edges because it's like, I don't know. She reacts poorly to, to highlight situations, in my opinion. So, um, cookies I too. Totally see that. I, I agree. I've grown so many strains over the years. I think I have like 40 or 45 strains right now. And cookies tend to like the less light. I have Mac one sitting in a shady spot because it, I mean, the Mac one can't take anything. It can't take, it can't take sun. It can't take cold. It really has a hard time with everything. Whiny. For a plant called Miracle, it, it sounds like it grows like shit, and it's yeah. a slow vegger. It doesn't stretch. It doesn't really produce a bunch. It's really frosty, dense, amazing nugs from what a lot of people say. But personally, it's it's not my. So I put it this. I put it. I put it this way. On uh, I did a podcast uh, yesterday, and I put it this way. I said, you know, Mac One for me. I was talking about hype strains, and I said I, I'm, I'm actually on the hype wagon for that strain. I like that strain. Um, I just love this to smoke it. But I don't uh, like I, the the politics behind it i don't like all the 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 this but i do yeah, like here yeah but i do like the the genetics and i do like the inputs so i think he started yeah. with good intention like the yeah. whole give it to someone you respect and then people started selling it anyway and then it became like this really i don't know uh, machismo culture i guess like people trying to one-up minship and well a lot of fake cuts and that happens with any uh legit or or fake cuts the, 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 any good cut starts to get faked and then the quality starts to go yeah. down because people can't determine what is real and what's not in the market that we're currently in 
I definitely agree with that sentiment. And uh, shout out to Chris Mertz, who uh, is saying that he loves these plant nerds dropping bombs and he's thanking the panel. And uh, MJ Coco is nice enough to respond. And I, I, I think that I really appreciate the the, the compliment. But um, you know, uh, especially Dr. MJ, you always have a really nice succinct way to put things like with that gene hormone biotic abiotic comment i wanted to finish my story real quick on the sorry uh, about that (laughs) but on i just said this is the best way to describe the mac is like they were asking how it is to grow i said i can only describe it like this it's like um it's like you know a really flashy girl you know what I mean? She's That's... like the, she's like the supermodel. It's like she demands all of your attention, all of it, all and of she, your attention. And she hits you. Yes, but but with all of the <laughs> attention, it's worth it at the end because then you know you get all the flash. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, you get the trophy wife. So yeah, that's that's how I describe growing that mac. Actually, uh, I am helping some people cultivate a, a hemp cultivar that's called Wife. I think, or something like that. <laughs> Appropriately named. You know, this sounds a lot like my experience with uh, Kyle's uh, plants. I am smoking on some of those now, sort of in trial. Um, really, really good. Like, I really like the the NERC, the New England Rock Candies. Um, I was not a fan of it at all throughout the entire time that I was growing that plant. Um, but I like it now that I'm smoking, I'm not vaping on it. Love it. Actually. I'm happy when my buddies grow those for me because like Girl Scout cookies, for example, it really helps my, uh, arthritis. I've broken all my fingers in both hands. So my hands have a lot of pain and the lock up and shit like that. But the forum cut Girl Scout cookie grown by the two buddies that I know who grow it is really high in humulene and beta cariophyllene. And that seems to really help alleviate my arthritis conditions but from both of their reports it is a low yielder and it has tendency to herm if you don't clean up the bottoms and i don't really don't understand why they keep it around like i'm just so thankful that they do because i guess it is really good smoke i medicated on that before the show hour and 15 minutes ago now and i'm still feeling really good from the i mean it's it's good quality smoke but uh as far as light we were talking about earlier i haven't and i've talked with them about it I haven't seen anybody successfully grow like a good looking bud of a form cut Girl Scout cookie over maybe 650 PPFD. I, I find it even in the crosses, it does best at like 500 to 650 in that range. Those are like the best buds, which is usually around like the shoulder level of the canopy. And uh, for me, I, I like to be able to run it like 900 to a thousand uh, on the high end. But if you do that with the Girl Scout cookie, it'll yield way worse and look awful. So just cookies are always in the, the the shady side of my greenhouse. Do you run uh, the forum cut or were you talking about Mac? I have forum cut crosses. Um, I, I, I have plenty. I have like cuvee cookies, blue cookies. Blue cookies is supposed to be original cookies or it's blueberry muffin crossed with original cookies. Somebody, but um yeah, I have, I, I have run a lot of the for the, you know, post forum cut lineage cookies and, it it definitely yields better um, than original cookies, but it it like or li- original cookies. It doesn't like a lot of light. And I just so say, the- sorry, I gotta ask ATG Acres. I have to ask you. I saw I'm going way back in time here. Sure. 
the beginning of this episode, but when Jack mentioned bringing that greenhouse up really hot, and I saw your reaction. I'd like you to. I'd like. <laughs> I'd like to hear your opinion on on why you don't seem to like that idea. I I just think that when you <clears throat> subject um, your biology, and I don't mean your soil biology, I mean the biology that exists around the plants. I forgot what it's called. I think Matt knows this term, but. Um, is it phylosphere or something like that? Something like that, yeah. And I think when you subject your phylosphere to such extreme temperatures, you're really just uh, hurting your plants. There's other ways to do it. And not to say that it doesn't work. And also, just to comment further on that, um, I think what uh, Dragonfly Earth Medicine was doing was encouraging the aphids. I think it was an aphid treatment that they cranked it up to a, 120 plus and they encouraged the aphids to go down toward the soil where it was cooler. So they actually filmed the, uh, maybe it was 130 degrees um, humidor, I'm not sure. but um, it, it ranges, 120 to 130 is the range that they typically have people. Sure. And, and when you're getting it that hot, it's kind of hard to stop it right at 121 or something. You know, you're closing it up, you're not regulating. So it's above 120 or It's not like you can stand in there and monitor the temperature, right? It's, it's way too hot. So I, mean, I know I know people that have I sauna at one eighty so and I could stay in there for twenty five minutes. The technology certainly exists, but yeah, the technology exists, and you can ventilate your room in an appropriately you know quick, responsive manner. Um, but but just to get to the bottom of this, I think that they were encouraging the aphids to go down to the soil and then crushing them with their hands. So the temperature alone wasn't eliminating the pest; it was a combination of encouraging the pest to go somewhere where they where they can gather and you can physically crush them if i'm not mistaken I yeah know it would be, it outright kills crushing aphids in like 150 degrees greenhouse seems like particularly odious work let me just say that odious and agreed agreed that is not the way i would go about it that being said and that's not the way that the people that i saw implement it did it they just got it to that temperature a few times throughout a week maybe like okay. day after day at the hottest point of the day and within a week their plants had been able to either naturally like predator mites either came in whatever it was that they killed off such a large portion of the population that they were able to then go in and handle the issue moving forward i, I used to cold treatment my room when i was doing indoor i would uh, you know, if I had spider mites or something, I would drop it down to like 55 degrees for three days. So I know this stuff works. I know that temperature control is certainly part of IPM. Um, I just, I'm not familiar with the multiple treatments per week method. I mean, I think it's important to consider like what you're saying, Aaron, that like, it wasn't just the one thing. It was the one thing and other supplementary things in concert which is like definitionally integrated pest management, you know, no matter what that technique is or where, where that falls in the range of sort of techniques that exist. But um, I, I will say that- That's a really you, common one too, Matt. Is there, there's no name for that with sort of doing two things in common where one knocks it down and the other one takes it out, right? Um, I like to call it a one-two punch. Yeah, yeah, no, it seems like there should be some word for that. Yeah, yeah a synergism. <laughs> Jack, Jack definitely is is correct. It's a, a synergistic effect, right? <laughs> I'm just loquacious for a comedic effect sometimes. Um, but uh, I was going to say that um, in my video about rice root aphids on my YouTube channel, 
And um, actually, I like to talk about temperature whenever I talk about a pest species in my pest primer uh, series, specifically for this reason, because like, like some insects like Western flower thrips can exist at a pretty cold temperature, but they, their development is like super long because of it. And as the temperature increases, the, the life cycle um, shortens and shortens. Um, because of the heat and all that sort of a thing. But it is true that even for like the rice root aphid, um, the, uh, you know, around like 30, 32 degrees Celsius um, in, in laboratory conditions, I must stress, which is not the same thing. Because you can find them, because the aphids might find a microclimate or something where they can kind of eke out refugia, places where organisms can like sort of hunker down for shelter is like so important to uh, to like pest management. It's so important to life in general. Like when we, even when we talk about like pathogens and I've tried to talk about this before, like a pathogen can wipe out like huge populations, but because a couple of them were able to eke out an existence away from most of the others, they could repopulate. Like, you know, when people talk about how things can naturally kind of adapt, that's, yeah, a, big, perfect that's a big example. part of it. Yeah, like a perfect example, I don't want to cut you off, but like a perfect example of what you're saying that everyone can understand, or at least I would, a lot of people should understand is like me right now in Michigan, we've had a, a like explosion of ticks, it seems like in our area where there's just a lot of ticks for some reason. And people are thinking, okay, let's go get some spray. What? Go cut your grass. What are you doing? Just cut your grass. You know what I mean? And you're fine eliminate the environment that the pest likes and, and stop spraying chemicals all over everything. So that, that's an example of what you're saying. I'm sorry. I don't know. Throwing the grass out for, for mulch, Spartan. Short mulch. That works good too. Take I wanted mulch. to say another a temperature one that I, and this is kind of funny in our group chat, uh, ATG Acres, AKA Aaron, the grower who's with us right now. Um, shortly after I sent this video of breeder Steve, everyone in the chat was like, welcome, Steve, welcome, Steve, even though his name is Aaron. So I just wanted to clear up that confusion for anybody in the panel who maybe listened. Yeah. To this. Thank you. <laughs> um, but secondly, uh, that panel, the reason I sent it was breeder Steve, who's a cannabis breeder from early 2000s, maybe even late 90s of Spice of Life seeds. He's now got like hectares in Colombia, where he's growing like field crops and he's doing the million seed search where he's had a bunch of people send him a bunch of stuff. He's very highly respected and incredible member of the community. And one thing that he dropped um, in his latest video where he came on the future cannabis project, just a, a comment that I took that I felt people will appreciate uh, and relates to the temperature thing was if you get it above 35 degrees Celsius or 95 degrees Fahrenheit for 10 to 15 minutes a day for about a week, he said with 100% success, it's always been able to kill off mildew, or I think specifically powdery mildew in his experience. Sure, I can see that. And those temps are a lot easier to achieve, especially for indoor grow rooms um, where people are dealing with that and having a lot of trouble. Um, he said he sort of didn't want to share the info because he didn't want like all the Canadian LPs to figure out how easy it is because he sees he hates a lot of the commercial cannabis and he likes to see these people fail for like not uh, bringing in people in the community who've been doing it and would know these types of things. So I want to share it with the people that are here that love cannabis and maybe don't want to have to spray uh, something on their plants if they could avoid something like PM a different way. Yeah. And I mean, like uh, speaking of like synergistic effects with um, like what I was saying with the rice root aphid, 
like yeah you could crank up the temperature potentially in certain cases and then in addition to that apply like a biopesticide or something and you know the heat stress alone might weaken their immune system quite a bit and make them that much more susceptible like i could see a heat casualty or two like just like a heat death uh and then like come in with buveria bassiana i'm being scatterbrained what i mean to say is if you apply buveria bassiana for example and you maybe have a couple of them die sort of because of Bouveria and heat um, and some other ones are still alive, well, aphids are colony organisms, sort of. And so like, um, you know, right there in that close proximity, that's how pathogens spread well uh, because they're right next to each other in a cluster. And so you can get this extirpation effect or like a local extinction. And um, that's how it happens in real life too, so. By which I mean nature, I guess, <laughs> real life. It's all real life. Martin has well, mentioned it. in the past how, like, sometimes, and maybe you should tell a story, but in your outdoor grows, you've had pests come along, and instead of, like, treating the pest right away, you realize that there was predators that are going to come after it if they got enough population. So if it wasn't going to, like, kill off your plant, you just leave it alone, and oftentimes the nature's predator would come along and clean it up for you. I've definitely done the same thing myself, um, and... Uh, yeah, like right now there's some, well, there are some insects I just can't suffer to live. I suppose it's an occupational hazard because I know how much it's going to screw with somebody else's plants. Uh, one thing is I have, I have grapes in my backyard and um, I get the glassy wing sharpshooter. And so far I haven't contracted Xylella fastidiosa, which causes um, Pierce's disease. But, um, you know, like it just, I always see it and I think, well, like what if you're the one that is that carrier? And um, I don't know, like, I hate that that's a thing that my residential plant can go on to cause uh, economic damage commercially, too. I think that every time I go to the grocery store, what if you're the one to give me COVID or? <laughs> right. It's kind of it's kind of that mindset, that sort of biosecurity agoraphobia almost. Yeah. I want to address a, there's a question uh, they asked in chat. They want to know what my favorite trimming scissors are. And I, I honestly, I just go to the grocery store and, and see what they have. But from the selection they have there, I really want to try some from Diamond Cut Co. Those look so nice. But I like the ones. Yes, yeah, like that style. Like Chickamasas. Yeah. Chickamasas. Chickamasa. Yeah. yeah. Right here. Bonsai, bonsai uh, pruners. They're amazing. Oh, do you like the spring loaded or the non spring loaded? Non spring loaded. Non spring. That's what I was okay. just going to say. I don't want to out the spring. Yeah, I, I want to hear about that. I want to hear why. Because I, I like, yeah. I like the spring too much loaded. Resistance. I'm not like, Matt. I, I'm on the spring. Tires out your hands. So the spring loaded, um, the spring loaded, you're uh, fighting the spring the whole time. That makes sense. That makes uh, sense. Half so, of your movements so you are that way. Yeah. So, like, for example, some days my job at work is eight hours of sitting there trimming. You know what I mean? So if you do that for eight hours straight, you know, that's going to be way more tiring to your hands than if you have a free floating where you're not even opening them up all the way. It kind of speeds you up a little bit too. You don't have to go all the way open, all the way closed. You could just be half open, half closed. It's just, I feel I'm way more precise without having that spring to fight the, against. You, the spring you goes that. a little bit open too. I usually don't let it get sort of all the way open. I mean, it does put pressure against you, but it removes the, the need to sort of manually open it all right you see what i'm saying you you doing that and then multiply that by eight hours just holding it 
But see, my my scissors open up, my my trimmers open up automatically. I don't have to do anything to get them to open. I just sort of release pressure and squeeze, release pressure and squeeze. I'm not yeah, actually activating always, muscles in the other direction. But you always have the resistance with your squeeze, and you're always it, from the all the way open position. Yeah, yeah. Double pressure one way and no pressure the other way is going to make those muscles that you use doubly tired than I, I spreading them. I get your point. I definitely do trim for more than eight hours in a session when I have to go trimming though. Um, and to be honest, it's not my hand getting tired. I think that, that sort of wears me down as much as like my brain getting tired of it at that point. But yeah, absolutely. that's a valid point too, but I have arthritis in both hands and I will say at least for the person who's got fucked up hands, who can barely roll three joints without like my hands locking up. If I have to trim, uh, which thankfully my wife, Lady Greenstock, I have a small harvest. She takes care of it all in a night or two. But when I have in the past and I use the spring versus the non-spring, I definitely preferred the non-spring because the less uh, physical strenuousness, like squeezing it shut, it doesn't seem like much. But over time, for me at least, it caused my hands to cramp a lot quicker and, and have a lot more pain versus like the free-floating chikamasas that both of the gentlemen just showed earlier. That's really interesting. I'll, I'll have to think about that. Well, I haven't experienced that myself know, either. Some of the outliers. To add a little professional weight to this, um, shout out to Eagle Gardens if he's still in chat, but uh, he interviewed um, Sonia. Wait, what? Wait, what? Sonia, wait, what? And she was talking about her time when she was managing a trim crew. And because she was advocating for the spring, she likes the spring. And, um, but she said that when she got, she specifically brought up the Diamond Cut Co. because they're they're a little bit more premium or fancy. I don't know. They look sweet. I want to get me a pair. But um, she said every time she would get that kind of, like, this style without the spring, that her trimmers would, like, fight over them. So, I mean, to me, that's, like, I mean, those are the people that are doing it every single day. That's their job. Those are the I will, I will throw this out. She also said some people did like the spring and brought their own scissors, even when they got all springless. So it's a preference thing. Oh, okay. it, it's right. sort of like a wet versus dry trim, I think, maybe with this one. I, I've had trimmers that prefer the springs, and they trim a pound or a pound and a half a day. Like, they're killer trimmers. So it just I think it is a preference thing. Yep, totally. Wanted to give uh, some shout-outs in the chat. Potent Ponics Steve, I uh, always love seeing you, bud. Uh, he says, need Mandalorian steel trimmers. I've only watched a few episodes of Mandalorian so far, but that's a funny reference for anybody who's into the Star Wars stuff. Yeah, I definitely like seeing Potent Ponics. Um, just ask him what was up in the comments because... Is he missed earlier. We were talking about aquaponics. Uh, Spartan was talking about using, or, or somebody, Matthew was referring to a grow that had a river close by, and, and Spartan was saying how it's sort of like a aquaponics light, almost, so to speak, because it's getting some of that diverse uh, microbiology from the aquatic life. Yeah, I, I'm just, I really like, I just think it's kind of cool to be able to, like, practice the sort of a historical or traditional methodology. Um, I don't know. Eagle Gardens, uh, he hosts the fucking talking shit with Eagle, which has been pretty much every single night since the whole quarantine things popped off. I think they're in the mid 60s of episodes. But he said, Sonia, wait, what was an awesome episode. And I just wanted to shout him out because I really love that show. I've been on the show a few times myself. And Sonia, wait, what is a Russian uh, grower who's in Michigan now, I believe. And she had a really interesting perspective. So if you heard that name, we're not like messing it up. Her name is actually Sonia, wait, what on Instagram. Uh, I know it's kind of a funny name, but she was full of knowledge and very analytical, and I just loved uh, her episode. So 
I don't think enough people have maybe heard of her yet. And I think it's awesome when we have these cross promotional platforms where you can get like the cheap home grow audience now is going to go flood her and follow and, and be able to interact with her and maybe listen to that episode and they'll maybe fall in love with the Eagles show. So shout out to him because he's also in the chat right now. Got to love this whole community of podcasters. I often see different shows in each other's chats, like Embracing Organics just did a crossover episode with the uh, Michigan Bros Grow Show last week or on Saturday. They did the uh, Abolished show, which is called The Frugal Force. And uh, that was a really fun one. Just listen to it. And shout out to here in what, a half hour, we got Brown Guy 420 coming back. So we got him coming to interview, talk with him. I can't, can't wait to talk to that guy. That's going to be a lot of fun. I know the organics people are getting excited for that one. He uh, was a pretty early pioneer and, and showed a lot of people how to do it. Uh, what I consider to be like, not that there's one right way, but he, he did it a, a great way that's affordable and, and sensible and sort of taught people the logic behind a lot of what he was doing and made a lot of people jump on that bandwagon. And I'm still sort of uh, in that camp in a lot of ways. So I'm looking forward to the show tonight if I can hang out after this one. Hey, shout out to... Uh... Aquaponic Steve there, Poponic Steve, however you know him. He says he's happy to come live anytime. That would be badass. Anytime, man. Anytime. Yeah. Maybe next I, week. Yeah, maybe so. Why don't you, yeah, clear your schedule. We'll be here. If you, Seriously, if you would like to, uh, this week would just be, we've only got 30 minutes left, um, but we'd love to have you on sometime with the whole crew. And I think um, that'd be a great addition because aquaponics, I think, is a very underexplored field of cannabis growing and breeder Steve that I was talking about earlier mentioned he's in Colombia and all those things. He's got like a 4 million or 4,000 liter, some crazy ass tank with like alligators in it. And he's doing aquaponics on like a massive scale. And he said in his experience growing cannabis and smoking it for years and years and having like BC hydro and having organic outdoor sun grown uh, full term light depths, everything. He's really highly always praised how, uh, the quality and flavor of aquaponics can be some of the best, if not, in his opinion, the best. So I think it's something that if people took the time to look into, it would interest a lot more people than they uh, might realize. It. And uh, it's definitely an option that not enough people maybe explore yet. Yeah, I definitely agree. It would be interesting to see you on live again, um, Potent. And for anyone who doesn't know, he does the uh, Growing With the fishes podcast on his youtube channel which is potent ponics long time dgc too so respect yeah we've been around enough that we can say things like that now <laughs> or at least everyone on the or most of the people on the panel have had interactions like that i think it's really cool it's crazy to think that we're over a year when you look at these like uh, once a week shows and we're in the 60 pluses and we're moving towards, you know, to and granted their shows have been around for longer. But as we keep moving into a more legal industry, I think uh, people will look back to these shows and, and continue to build on to the community. And I think it's awesome to see it continue to grow and uh, expand and sort of adapt. Like every, a lot of people have their own shows and a lot of people still just do live shows. And I'm thankful that everyone's here. Spartan, you've got about, uh, I misread the time, you've got maybe 10, 15 minutes yeah, left. Yeah, I want to I wanna, I wanna say one little, one last rant, <clears throat> and then, yeah, then I can jot out here. But along the same lines of what you guys are saying, and I've kind of been preaching it a lot lately, and it's, um, I feel like the, the, I feel it moving in the right direction now. 
you know, I always try to be the change I want to see. And that's why I'm on all, all the, you know, all the shows that I've, I'm sitting in these chats watching. I'm trying to, I'll, I'll get on that show. Why, why can't I be part of the conversation? You know, I'm like starstruck by these people. So, you know, the whole, the, the best strategy for me to learn is, is from people that have already done the thing. You know what I mean? Reading it and, you know, yeah, I can read it on a piece of paper. I can, you know, read it online, but if I can interact with somebody who does it, who has done it, and I can, we can have conversations, I get an understanding like way faster. And so it's like direct upload, you know what I mean? So for me, the shows have been invaluable for, for, for my journey. So um, to see us do these cross platform things where, you know, I'll go on your show, you come on my show and, and embrace each other rather than try to be competitors with each other. That's what I want to see. And that's what I, I love. You know what I mean? So I, I kind of preach that. And, you know, if, if there's a show out there that's, you know, being super drama filled, I don't have hate for him. I just won't participate. You know what I mean? So, um, and by excluding people like that, you know, I'm not going to, you know, have any hate for you, you know, but by just excluding them and not participating in a back and forth, then they're going to say, okay, this behavior is not right. And maybe they'll change, but, uh, I love the coming together. That's, that's my favorite. So, you know, it all falls into my my classic sign off where I always say growers love, but it just extends to this. And it's, um, I don't know. It just makes my, my green heart fucking grow. You know what I mean? So, so thank you everybody. I loved hanging out with you. I loved your chat. Um, I wanted to shout out. I don't remember cause I said it before, but I don't know if we were recording, but I wanted to shout out. I did a podcast with uh, a couple of guys from growing with my fellow lads off the same network. Um, they have their own channel and it's called, I wrote it down. The Grow Room 420 Growers Forum. It's a YouTube channel. And they did an inter- they had me interview, they interviewed me on their uh, show. And I had an, an excellent time. And uh, I just really, really enjoyed myself there. And those guys have such a great perspective. Um, I really think it's a, a good watch because um, I was telling the guys earlier, it was almost like a peek back in time. Like, you know, it's like they're under prohibition. I mean, it's, it's starting to open up a little bit for them, but they're under prohibition. So it's like back you know, they're still under the old, old way of doing things. And it was interesting to talk to the guys and they were awesome. They were awesome. Awesome. Uh, people hosts. So. Shout out to Percy's grow room and Kino. I love, uh, the growing yeah. with my fellow lads and their podcast is really funny and entertaining as well. And I agree with you. It's totally like a blast of the past. When you look back at some of the policies that they're still living under, unfortunately, in a lot of places in the world are like that. Uh, speaking of which potent Ponics Steve in the chat says, please, please plug duke diamonds fundraiser and i'm going to do that duke diamond a longtime breeder dgc member uh fellow cannabis community person he's uh bred a lot of really good stuff he actually got um locked up i don't want to speak on whatever the charges were but uh, it was like a state thing and then they released his charges and because he had some former stuff on his record they released him into the federal custody so now they're doing a fundraiser through seeds here now and I think they're looking for like something like $50,000 and they've got like 30,000 of it already raised. So if you have some extra money available and you've got love for uh, the community and people like Duke Diamond, they're definitely looking for a little bit of help and support there because he has a wife and some kids that without his ability to generate income are in a difficult situation. And so they're trying to get him out. And uh, he's just a person like many of us here on the panel that grows cannabis. And like some of our panel members also sell seeds and do things like that. So, uh, definitely supporting the community if and when we can. I also want to echo the statement. 
that um, it's really cool that we have this sort of like direct connection ability. Um, I think it's I think that and like other things, um, other other resources, whether it's things like Dr. MJ Coco, and your uh, your free resources for people to understand like the dynamics of light and cultivation, or like my pest primer series or things like that. Like people create this content and um, disseminate it and. As a knowledge worker for myself, like, I don't think that I'm cheapening myself. In fact, I think I'm doing great things to help other people. And I think that that resonates with a lot of folks. And uh, generally, cooperativeness has been a pretty helpful trait. It lets us literally change the earth. And we do it every day because of it or because of the results of it. Yeah. Uh, So, I mean, there's a lot of advantages. And I'm glad that we can reap them. Cheers to that, man. Cheers to that. Yeah, it's spirit of collaboration and democratizing knowledge, democratizing information, making stuff available. So, um, you know, it doesn't have to be a mystery for people that, that otherwise don't have access to that those kinds of resources or that, that education. Um, I, I love that. So, yeah, happy to be there with you, Matt. I had something. Spartan already logged off. I never even yeah, said he, he, he gave love. a piece. Yeah. Love Spartan. He gave, he gave a, a wave. Sign and, and wave. Yeah, a wave. I, I sort of saw that on the YouTube. It was a little bit late. But yeah, it's uh, we still got about 20 minutes left, so I think we can uh, hang around and still talk a little bit more. Uh, does anybody remember what we were talking about before? Oh, Spartan was talking about the community aspect, and I just wanted to uh, echo that sentiment and, and talk about one thing that a lot of people are baffled by. Um, my cultivation experience was many, many more years uh, up to the point where I'm at now before I started cultivating 100% under my own like control. I was working as like a person who watered or whatever, helped out as part of somebody else's grow. And in doing it 100% on your own, whether you're listening at home and you're having to do it yourself, I think you learn more when you've got, you have to plant the seed, you have to grow it through veg, you have to flower it, you have to try it, you have to cure it. Doing every single step of the process with nobody else over top of you where you have a hundred percent say in how you're going to do it. That's when I learned the most. And over the past two or three years as a closet grower, I learned more than I learned helping buddies grow big, badass greenhouse operations and giant indoor cultivation with more lights than I like to talk about. <laughs> but when you're doing it all yourself and jumping on these panels uh, and listening to people that have done it firsthand, I saw my both knowledge and grow quality soar. So I think uh, people that feel like, oh, you've got so much knowledge. How'd you get so much knowledge? It's like, well, most of it was in the past few years, just listening to shows like this and interacting in the chat and asking questions in the comments and DMing back and forth with people, both helping others and having people help me when I was having struggles. And I think that you'd be very surprised how good of a quality you can get if you just stick with it and really dive into the information and the knowledge and try and get the best equipment or whatever that you can afford and, uh, listen to somebody who seems like they're having a lot of success and, and try and uh, follow some of the guides like Dr. MJ puts out or Matthew puts out. If you're having pest issues, there's a good likelihood that he's already done a pest primer series. So you can figure out all that you need to know about it to combat it. You know, I think really, sorry. I just want to say this case in point, the, the friends I was talking about earlier, I hope you guys are delighted to know they actually were listening in um, because I sent them a link to this exact podcast live and said, Hey, I happen to mention your grow, you know, listen along. And they, they jumped in and they weren't commenting or anything, but they were listening. And the fact that I can do that, it's sort of like surreal when you, if you even look like 20 years ago, you know? So yeah, yeah, yeah.
Well, I was going to say, I've been doing, um, and we were also tossing out other sort of uh, podcasts and other things in the community. I've been doing a series of uh, Ask Dr. Coco podcasts with uh, Jordan River on Growcast. Um, so you guys can go check those out. I think three of them have dropped already, at least one more coming already. Um, but one of the things that I was talking about was um, related to this sort of community thing. We were thinking about the audience and how the audience of the podcast is different than sort of the audience that comes through Coco for Cannabis, the website. Um, and, you know, all the audience that's listening to here is really much more plugged into the, the community, um, you know, less than 1% of our visitors actually sort of participate on the website. Um, there's literally thousands of people every day that come and just read an article and they're gone and they're back in there by themselves. Um, and they're not really engaged or, or sort of plugged in listening to podcasts, doing other things like this. So I think that you, you really, it, it's funny to sort of think about um, how much you can learn when you kind of are able to, to join a community, how much I've learned from sort of listening to you guys over the, this show over the last year and a half. Um, and it's different. You get really balkanized in your own little world. And I think a lot of the, the growers are sort of just growing their own crops and they're managing it. They figured out how to do most of the things for themselves. And every once in a while, they might have a question and they go Google and answer and they find an article and then they go back to doing it by themselves. But they're not really participating in a community of growers. And I, I mean, that's one of the big things that we try to, to promote and to sort of establish. I, you know, that's our, our motto is grow your own, but, but don't grow alone. So take advantage of being involved in the community. I really definitely support those, that, those sort of sentiment. Hey, Doc, uh, I just want to say I'm probably one of those statistics who uh, isn't commenting because I, I go there often to grab a guide to send to somebody who's experiencing an issue and they've DM'd me and they found me through some sort of community or whatever. But uh, I, I love yeah. the guides and often reference them and hopefully I'll, I'll encourage them to now maybe sign up. Well, I mean, I, I, I love the traffic. Time. I'm not trying to get people like, don't come to my site unless you're going to participate. I mean, it's all good, but it's just interesting. I mean, you know, there's some articles we get, we had so much traffic on some of the articles, like the topping article gets a lot of traffic and they just all read the topping article and then they leave. And it's like, you know, they're not, they're looking for specific answers to specific questions instead of sort of, um, and then there's the group of people that are trying to plug in and learn as much about as many different topics as they can and share and grow. And, and it's just sort of a, a different approach. So I've thought a lot about sort of how to, how to convert those people, right? How to, to make more casual visitors um, participate and belong and sort of uh, feel like they're welcome in the community. I wanted to throw out there, if you are one of these people who like uses Instagram and you want to DM someone for some advice for growing, whether it's me or another panel member, um, maybe just like be patient and, and wait. It might seem like your garden's going to die if you don't get that answer in like 10 minutes or a second or whatever. But we have one guy and I'm not going to say their name, but they ask basically every single panel member in our entire community whenever they have an issue, a question. So then they're getting 10 different responses. And granted, maybe nine out of 10 of us are all giving the same response, if that's like the way of going about it. But sometimes there's more than one way of going about it. So he just got more and more confused and was like always chasing his tail, asking advice to so many different people. So um, although we do have a panel and, and you're taking advice from multiple people right now, I don't mean to contradict myself too much, but when you're looking for that specific answer, uh, maybe find someone that you can 
get a regular communications with and and stick with their thing at least for like one grow if if they're having success and they can coach you through it because if you start asking 30 or 40 different people over time you're going to get so many different answers and it's going to probably lead you to a path of like overdoing yeah and often overdoing uh brings out more issues and then you're chasing your tail even more so i'll say this if if you have a bug question ask a bug guy matt you have a soil question ask a soil guy if you have a light question ask a light guy you can't ask a closet grower and i no offense to closet growers because some closet growers have been doing this for 30 years and have absolutely exceptional product but you can't just ask one closet grower about a warehouse grow and expect to get an accurate response I think, I think that important. that's why you have to talk about physio. I mean, sorry, from my perspective, that's why I like to do all of that like nitty gritty stuff, like talking about physiology, because that kind of answers if you understand it, at least if it's if, if I can break it down sufficiently. And sometimes I don't and I have to break it down more. And I love doing that because that's how you um, engage. And also it's really helpful to talk in like metaphors and that sort of a thing. But if you understand like biologically what's happening or something, then you can kind of go, huh, well, intuitively then this probably won't work and this probably won't work. And oh, now I understand why that actually works. And the little intricacies like that are, are explained in the minutiae. The devil's in the details, right? Well, you're an outside the box thinker, I think sometimes, and you've got a lot of tools in your belt where some people might look at it like, I have a pest, I need to spray something to kill it. And that's like their only avenue in their mind where I think it's important for people to uh, maybe take a step back sometimes and, and think about all their different options uh, because there are people that have varying levels of expertise and uh, a lot of them are more open than you might imagine to even offering free consulting and advice. I've given more than my fair share of it and had many, many, many happy gardeners saying, thank you so much for helping me with my issue or whatever. And uh, I'm sure a lot of the other panel members have had the same experiences. So it's uh, rewarding for, for both sides, because even if I wouldn't have run into that problem in my garden, then I might have learned from how they dealt with it uh, and said that, you know, I haven't dealt with this myself, but I know people who have and they beat it using this or things improved by doing that. And uh, sharing that information can be super powerful, in getting people on the right track to grow on their best. Yeah, education is, I think, a really important aspect of, like, regenerative ag agriculture and that sort of thing, because you have to understand the complex system. If you don't, you might not be able to make sort of nuanced decisions that are ultimately very important because of, like, down, you know, downstream cascading effects about how you change some fundamental aspect of your cultivation style. Um, Potent Ponic says, um, actually, in the comments, so is it the 95 degree or a certain VPD that kills the powdery mildew. I asked because aquaponic greenhouses tend to run humid. Um, and I think he's referring to the dragonfly earth medicine thing. Right? It was actually the Steve from Breeder Steve, Steve. Uh, Spice of Life formerly, but now I don't know what it was like some very aggregate ag conglomerate kind of sounding name of what his company's called down in Columbia now. But he did not specifically mention any relative humidity. So I am not sure if it would need to be potentially higher if uh, it was more humid or if it's fine regardless of the humidity. But one thing I know Matthew has mentioned in the past is powdery mildew and, and many other uh, molds and mildew specifically actually don't do well at 100% humidity. So sometimes even spraying just like water on the plant is enough to kill certain molds. Um, mm -hmm. But and that also has some correspondence to do with like pH. If you get the pH yeah. level. VPD taken. for VPD's sake really affects the plant more than other things. I could imagine why high humidity might 
make a more conducive environment for the powdery mildew. But I imagine that the the sort of effective agent here is just the heat, not the combination of the heat and humidity. And I agree with that. Um, that's that's the case. Like uh, for powdery mildew, like the hundred percent humidity, which is essentially just moisture on the surface of the leaf. Like if you have that for too long, you'll suffocate the leaf, obviously. So we should, you know, that's the physiology thing that needs to be understood in the back of your head. Although different plants will have different, um, obviously uh, weaknesses to this. Some have a hydrophobic wax and all of that, but um, yeah, it's the heat that kills. And for like Botrytis, for example, it's not as uh, problematic. So like, that's the other kind of issue. That's the rub because what affects one fungus might be facilitating another fungus in certain contexts. And so um, you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't sometimes. With those That's important to are... consider regionality because like in Canada, he said a lot of them deal with PM where, where he's at in Colombia now, no one ever has PM because it's just way too hot. They deal with more like fusarium, I think he was saying, and other uh, issues. So I was, actually, I was explaining uh, that with like, you know, mask filters and that sort of thing. Cause somebody said viruses are so much smaller than the particle size. I'm like, yeah, but particle size is a big, big way, even in agriculture, um, how viruses, bacteria, fungi, there are canidian spores, you know, pollen in the, in the environment and uh, even like plant spores, like from ferns and things like high heat, high UV radiation will kill them. And you, we've seen this in corn where like, um, the, am I, am I saying this right? Yeah, like basically like the pollen grains themselves will be destroyed by the high UV radiation and also heat in, in the air as they travel through um, the air. So the same thing happens for arthropods as well. And particles can be shelter for microbials. Aaron, did you have something earlier? Sorry, I, I kind of talked over you there. Oh, that's okay. Um... I kind of forgot. What were, what was it? Uh, we were talking about the powdery mildew at like 95 degrees and, and maybe whether or not it was impacted by the relative humidity or not. Oh, I don't know. I think I was just probably adding on something. I can't remember at this at this time, but it must have not been important as my mom would say. <laughs> That's how I One feel sometimes I, I forget. Powdery mildew. If you're really having problems with powdery mildew, I mean, I would step back. Whenever I see powdery mildew, I don't see it very often, but it, it's because uh, the the climate has gotten out of, of range um, or there's too much vegetation, too much moisture, other things like that. Um, so it, it's time, when, if you're really getting powdery mildew, I, I, I think that it's time to sort of uh, maybe address some pruning practices or some air circulation issues or some other things like that. As Thin and vent is, is the only way to prevent PM in your room. If you don't have good enough circulation, then you're yeah. not thinning enough. Yeah, yeah. microclimates are going to get you even if you get it to that. Yeah, or not circulating the, the air enough. Exactly. So it's not just about getting rid of the, the PM or sort of treating it with the heat thing. You then also need to figure out why am I getting PM and sort of how do I improve the, the conditions in the garden? Exactly. The heat I thing totally is the band-aid for, for, a, for a really more serious uh, foundational issue. Yeah, you couldn't have sent a better 
um, it's a fundamental thing, right? That you have to like at the, at the, at the onset, <laughs> you know, right. maybe you're growing too many plants at once, for example. Right. Or you don't have a fan going in the undercarriage or you, some, some other issue needs to be addressed there. So it's step one is like fix the, the active outbreak, but then step two has to be make those kinds of adjustments so that this stops happening. That's like 90% of most problems. I would definitely say integrated pest management here we are it's the it's all in the nomenclature integrated yeah in michigan bros grow show they talked about they had a guy who's been doing it for 30 years and somebody asked like what do you think about ipm and he's like well i've been doing it for 30 years so we're gonna have to get a lot more if you ask me a specific question i can answer it but like ipm covers so much so i could talk for hours and hours and hours and hours and uh never have enough to say about ipm so you can invent ipm tomorrow if it works in your climate Yep, totally. I think, and everyone should uh, implement what works best in your environment, um, your locality, knowing the local pest and things like that. But we're coming up to that uh, six o'clock hour out here on the West Coast. So I'm going to go ahead and pass it over to the panel members to do their sign-offs, starting with Matthew. This was a great episode for a few reasons. One, some uh, a longtime friend. This friend actually I've known for most of my life. I, I met him in elementary school. Um, so I'm very happy and excited to hear that you got a little bit of uh, advice from the panel and listened along. That's kind of cool for me. Um, and I liked that I had a lot of cool interaction with the chat. The chat has been on fire lately. I saw us reach about 80 people watching total. I think that was um, the highest. So that's very cool. If you want more IPM information, please come to my YouTube channel. I have been making a whole lot of videos regarding um, observational footage that I see in the field. Um, and I realized that that could be very valuable comparison information when I talk to people and identify um, different pests. So please come to the Xenthanol YouTube channel. And you can also find me on Instagram at SyncAngel. I share a lot of information over there as well. Thank you so much for joining us. And I've really been enjoying those uh, observational footage especially being that we're in the same city and I'll be growing outdoor and greenhouse here pretty soon. So knowing what pests are around is always extremely helpful and, and seeing them firsthand. You've captured some really nice videos on, on the Instagram and as well as the YouTube. So definitely make sure to check him out, everybody who's listening. Next up, we have uh, Aaron, the grower. Thanks. <clears throat> Thanks, Jack. Um, I will say in terms of Matt, he's, he's an incredible resource. Um, and don't forget about his PayPal. He takes donations and he deserves them because he puts out a lot of work for free. And um, in terms of myself, I'm at ATG Acres. Um, I just posted a cool video this morning where I interviewed uh, Clackamas Coot. Uh, we talked a little bit about barley and we talked a little bit about vermicompost. And I encourage everyone to check that out to be on his level because he's an incredible grower. Um, and if you're interested in anything I got going on, don't hesitate to message me. I'm happy to give advice or give in, or in <clears throat> you know, any kind of uh, advice on inputs that I use in my soil or in my garden. So ATG Acres. Thanks so much for joining us, Aaron. It's always a pleasure to have you, even though you just joined uh, last week. I think that we're going to have a bright future together uh, with you helping out with the panel. And Glad uh, to hear definitely. It. Check out that interview with Clackamas Coot. I'm a big fan of his. I've, I've run his soil mix. It's one of the few that I've grown with and really enjoyed. Uh, it benefits a lot from like malted barley and uh, alfalfa and some teas really soup it up even more than just the mix itself. Um, and yeah, just thank you so much for coming. And next up we have Dr. MJ. 
hey guys, yeah, this was a fun episode. I, I sort of appreciated the uh, opportunity to just sit back and chat about lots of different things and listen to you guys talking about vermicompost and all sorts of stuff was fun for me. Um, so I, I am Dr. MJ Coco at CocoForCannabis.com. Um, we publish articles on the science and practice of growing cannabis. Um, a few that relate to some of the topics we've been dealing with today. Uh, we talked about the, some of the grow light guide stuff and you guys can come over and, and check out all of those articles. And we have a chat room at Cocoa for Cannabis. So if you do want to sort of diagnose things and you need uh, you know, quick answers to stuff, I think that it, it may be a, a better way than just posting things on Instagram or DMs or other things. There's always a group of people there that will be willing to help you out with that um, and our growers forum. So participate in that community, really plug in and be part of something. I think that uh, the community aspect of it is really one of my favorite parts about being in the cannabis community overall. So I appreciate the rest of the panelists in the chat and everybody else, grower love. Thank you so much for joining us, Doc, and uh, really encourage people to use some of those resources on CocoForCannabis.com. And uh, if you feel like you got the time and want to get in a little bit more invested in the community, they have a great chat room. And the forum over there is really awesome as well. And you can learn so, so much by joining into something like that. I wanted to echo uh, something Aaron, the grower, said earlier uh, after Matthew spoke was that he does have a PayPal tip jar. And I've personally hit it a couple of times, not like I'm dropping off a ton of money, but I think it's nice to support content creators. Even before I knew Matthew uh, from the YouTube and Instagram, I used to see people tagging him all the time and like at Sync Angel what bug is this? And then he'd come on and give it the scientific name and accurately identify it usually within like 24 hours if the page was uh, not private. And from there, we've been able to join the panel. I saw him speak live here at a San Diego Cannabis and Hemp Business Conference and really enjoyed his presentation, but um, have even more so enjoyed his YouTube content and the contributions that he's given to the panel. So if you do feel so inclined and uh, want to donate to him or want to donate again, shouting out to the Duke Diamond fundraiser. Uh, if you've got a little spare change kicking around that you feel like giving to a good cause, uh, if these people have helped you, don't be afraid to pay it forward. If you don't have it, we completely understand. It's uh, free for a reason. We want to spread the information as far and as wide as possible. And with that being said, we're a little bit over the six o'clock hour. I'm at Jack Greenstock on Instagram, as well as Cannabuzz. You can find me at Jack Green at Jack underscore Greenstock on Twitter. I also host my own show, Greenstock Talks, which I've got four episodes out, and you can check those out. I want to give a big shout out to Shane of the Cheap Home Grow. He is the one who produces the show and makes this available for all of us. And I also wanted to shout out Spartan Grown, who joined us earlier, who is now on the Michigan Bros Grow Show. So after we get off live, you can go and check that out if you're still looking to listen to more cannabis content. Thanks, everybody in the chat for coming. Have a great week. Growers love, everyone. Growers love. Growers love.